Good morning, good evening, and good afternoon. Whenever and wherever you're listening, we just wanted to extend the warmest of welcomes. So kick back and relax as we continue through our sermon series. Well, good morning. Good morning. Happy Sunday. It's good to see you all. Okay, so there we go. It's good to see you. Happy Sunday. My name is Jeff Bachman, and I am so excited to be here. Based on, so I'm going to make a couple assumptions of who's in the room. They're either, like me, maybe not the biggest football fans, which, you know, I'll watch a game or two now and again. I'll take it in. But, or you are people of faith, and you believe I'm not going to be, that I'm going to be done at noon. And, and I, <laughs> I like that faith. Keep praying. Uh, <laughs> so it's so good to be with you today. Thank you for joining us. What a good Sunday to be here. Oh, um, uh, as Todd has already mentioned, we are preaching through the book of Matthew. And as we, as we preach through Matthew, one of the best ways that you can follow along with that is with our Matthew journals, if you don't have one. And actually for a bit here, we were doing this thing where we, would, we were giving out the Matthew journals, but we were also handing out like sermon notes. And what we were finding is people would take the sermon notes and stick them in the Matthew journal, like a folder. And we're like, okay, that's not what that's for. So Matthew journal is how you take notes and then that's it. That's it. And you look at the screens and our Instagram and our online for how to stay up to date on what's going on. So if you don't have a Matthew journal, please grab one of those because we are going to continue as we have been faithfully plotting through um, Matthew. We're on Matthew 12 and we're going to be looking at Matthew 12, 14 through 21 today, picking up where Larry left off last week with such a powerful message it was, it was Jesus inviting this man who, um, who had either a, a birth defect or an injury or something to where he said, stretch out your hand and I will heal you. <clears throat> and what a beautiful message, not only to say it's Jesus who heals, but as you show all of who you are to the community of, of who you're among, that you're safe and that you're welcomed and you're loved and you're accepted. And what a beautiful, like, What a beautiful goal for us to aspire to, to be a community like that where everyone feels safe enough to say, this is who I am, all my bumps and bruises, and I'm here. And to say you are loved, not only by the creator of the universe, but by us as well, and we're glad that you're here. So that's where we're gonna start. We're gonna pick up in Matthew 12, 14 through 21, and we're gonna continue on. So let me read it for you right now. Matthew 12, 14 starts and it says, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from, the, from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the pro- prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will, will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Amen? Amen. Uh, A couple of years ago, right when we moved to to Southern California, my family and I were invited to go to a birthday party. So my, my daughter, my youngest daughter was probably at the time three years old, and then it kind of goes up by two years from there. We had invited to a birthday party that was a roller skating party which is so cool. Here's, so here's the photo. 
Can you show it on the side? Because that one is just a little big. It's not a great photo. So I'd say, look on, on one of the sides. So I wanted to just show you for a second to just get an image of, of what was happening here. And, and I think I went to this with some sort of like this idealistic view of what a roller skating party with three people who have never had eight wheels on their feet before was going to be like. And so this wasn't just, you can take that down. Um, that's, that's us. Um, but but so we went, and I think that we had this idea of what this was going to look like, but we didn't take into consideration that we'd added 24 wheels to our children and that we were still going to have to manage them and parrot them in the exact same way. So we put these things on them. And, and again, you say the idea of roller skating, and everyone's like, yes. We talked to them about it, and we had tried to set them up for success, and we said yes. And they put them on, and then they, got, they stood up, and they're like, wait, I don't like this. This isn't good. And they're starting to walk, and this is just on the carpet, by the way. They haven't even gotten out to the rink yet. So we make our way out to the rink and every kid decides it's like kind of in their own personality what they're gonna do. Our oldest kid decides that he is going to navigate around the roller rink by holding onto the wall the whole time. So he's here like this, he's here like this, he's here like this. He's like, this is fun. I really like this. This is great. I'm gonna do this the whole way. This is roller skating. My middle daughter, Isabella, she goes and takes her roller skates, puts them on and she has one of those um, walkers, you know? Like they, they now have them with, with wheels on them and she's like, I'm going so fast. This is fun. And so we had her and her, and then my youngest daughter looks and she's like, no, no. Not, we're like, no, you, you come out, we hold your hands, we go around, we have fun, we make family memories. That's what we do. And she's like, no, you carry me. We're like, that's not what you do. You don't get onto wheels and then carry somebody else. So my w- wife carried her around the rink and um, we're going around, and it's so funny because we're around the rink about halfway, and halfway through the rink, all of a sudden we look, and there's a sign on there, and it is a picture. It's like somebody had gone and sketched my wife and a child, and it says, please don't carry your children. This is dangerous. And you're like, we knew that going over there, but she wouldn't let us do that. So we go around one time, and all of our kids are like, that was great. We're all done, right? You're like, that's not really how roller skating works. I mean, I personally Growing up in Ohio, didn't have a whole lot to do, so I'm decent at roller skating. Thank you very much. I'll go to your next party. The rest of my family, uh, my wife could hold her own, but the, the kids had not ever done this before, and so they were just not having it. And so they went around once. They sat on the thing, and they're like, this is great. When's the cake? We're going to hang out. And so as it happened, so we're sitting there and hanging out. We're trying to kill some time. And so all of a sudden, my wife had to go in and use the restroom, and my youngest daughter was like, I'm with you. You put wheels on my feet. We're not leaving. You and me, we're doing this together. So she goes in with her. And at some point, she's like, okay, so when are we taking these these roller skates off? And my wife's like, we're not taking them off. And she's like, that's it. I'm out. So my daughter goes from underneath the stall and army crawls out of the bathroom. So she has now scooted her dress and her clothes all the way across a roller skating bathroom floor. I know. I know. So we burn those clothes fast. But she comes and as she is, as she's army crawling to safety, and I'm standing on the outside because I was kind of receiving the kids after they had used the restroom. I stood there and I hear from the bathroom, I don't trust you. You've changed everything. I don't trust you. And it's, it's like we had gone and taken away everything that she knew to be true. You don't put me in harm, mom and dad. You give me flat feet, not feet with wheels. I don't trust. Everything has changed and I don't like a bit of it. I don't like any of it at all. And I know for us in our lives, that faith is going to be faith is that there has to be some element of stepping in and trusting. I get that. But it would also be naive and ignorant if we were to blindly trust something without some sort of a foundation, without recognizing of saying, look, at the point that everything out here feels like chaos, there's still got to be that thing that we anchor ourselves on. And for our daughter, we didn't give her that. But for us, God has given that. 
And what we're gonna see in this passage as we read is that there's an environment that is changing. The, the stakes are being raised. Jesus, at, at one point, you'll see him even do something called withdrawing. But the two things that haven't changed, one is that the plan hasn't changed. The plan is absolutely still the same. Jesus is not plan B. It's not like God was surprised and it's not like the Old Testament is angry God. He went to therapy and now he's nice God. That's not how it works. This all fits in together and it's all pointing from Old Testament all the way through to Jesus coming to rescue and save the lost. That's the plan. And then the other thing that we get to see in this is the character of Jesus. We get to see him not only as kind and gentle and loving, but trustworthy. And that when this world around us is falling apart, there is that thing that anchors. That when everything else has changed, there's still something where we can say, but I've still got that. Because for us, you're probably asking the same thing that I am at different points and times in our life, is that, is Jesus worth holding on to in the middle of any storm that I'm in? In the middle of my job or my marriage falling apart or my midlife crisis or what in the world is happening to my children or what in the world is happening to my parents or is, it, is, there, any, is there anything that we're able to hold on to in the middle of this? And there's something so powerful in knowing, hearing from others, and then being the ones to proclaim to somebody else that God actually is in control in the middle of this, whatever this is. But I think you know what I mean when I say that. And so let's look at 14, because it starts out not all that uplifting, is that despite the healing that he had just done, and in fact, because of it, verse 14, it says, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they, were, how they might kill Jesus. Now understand, this is the turning point in this whole story. It's the turning point in chapter 12. It's the turning point in, in, in the book of Matthew. And it's the turning point of Jesus. Because don't forget, last week, what we saw was Jesus came out not only healed on the Sabbath, which they were forbidden to do, is that it was considered doing work on the Sabbath. And you really want to do a lot of work, heal, heal somebody, like do a miracle. So he healed on the Sabbath, but he didn't stop there. He said, not only am I going to heal on the Sabbath, but by the way, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, you think they like that? No, not quite. Basically, he's saying, you don't say what's permissible. I, I'm Jesus. I say what's permissible. You don't get away with that. I do. <laughs> I'm out of order. You're out of order. This whole courtroom's out of, out of order. That's what he's saying. He's like, I'm going to shut this place down. And he's saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. So then for the first time, we see in Matthew that the Pharisees are openly plotting to kill Jesus. Now, again, if you've grown up in church, don't gloss over that because even I did as you're reading that, you're like, there you go, going to kill Jesus again. They're going to kill another person. They aren't trying to arrest him. They're not trying to banish him out of the city. They're going to take his life. They're so convinced that Jesus is a violation of the religious rights and beliefs that they have that they are going to wipe him off the earth. When's the last time that you got onto Facebook and somebody said something that you knew was wrong or at least that you thought you knew was wrong? Response, murder, murder, which actually isn't that funny because that's what people are actually doing today, but that's what they're doing. They're saying, Jesus doesn't believe what I do and he's in violation of what I am hold to protect, so I am going to take him off this earth. Now, of course, there is a sense of that they're trying to protect their own power and their position as Pharisees and religious leaders. But frankly, but if you were to ask them, they were saying, hey, we're doing God a solid and we're gonna just take care of this one. God, you handle all the other ones we're going to get rid of Jesus, okay? We got you. 
But up to this point, Jesus has been clear. In fact, he said he would perform a miracle, he would heal, he would do his ministry, and afterwards he would say, and don't tell anyone what I've done. Keep it to yourself. In fact, he'll say it again in 16. We'll see it here. Is that he continues to heal and he says, stop because he understood the time and the place and the purpose of what it was he was doing. In fact, we're going to see the story turn. There's going to be a shift because in Matthew 13, which is what we're going to be looking at here in the next couple of weeks, Matthew 13, he's going to go for the next, I think it's for five weeks. We're going to be teaching the stories that are, that are called parables. Parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And Jesus would deliver these stories. And for those who had, as, as he says, if you have ears to hear, then you'll understand what he is that he's trying to communicate. For everybody else, they thought it was just a great story. And so Jesus had to kind of switch the rules and he had to figure out a different way and how he was going to be able to teach because he was trying to not protect himself, but he, he understood what, what the time was and what he was supposed to be doing. We'll learn more about that here in a second. Verses 15 through 17, it says, aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. That word withdraw, it, it translates to the word anahoreo, which means to, to withdraw and to retreat. But here's the thing. It's not just to withdraw and retreat. It actually means retreat to advance. It's so easy for us to read this and go, oh, Jesus got scared and he ran away. And it's, and, and it's easy to assume that he fled so that he would live to fight another day, which is true, but that's not it. See, Scripture indicates that it's very clear that Jesus understood his purpose in his life and what he was doing. And so when he withdrew, it was for the purpose of the will of the Father, which at that point would, would, would save and preserve his life. However, there will also come a time that we will see in Scripture later that he will also not only preserve his life, he will willingly lay down his life giving this sense that we know that he has got everything under control and is in direct communication with God and what he's doing then and what he then was doing for us that we now get to receive the benefits of. When Jesus receives these threats, he escapes danger, he withdraws, and he continues to heal. He doesn't hide. He doesn't plot revenge. Something that was pro is probably so foreign to you and I, at least to me, somebody threatens me, I fight back or I run. Somebody wrongs me or my family, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I got a plan of how I'm going to get you back. I'm not going to see if there's other ways that I can help you and heal you and serve you. The next part that we're gonna see in Matthew 12 is actually the longest passage that's quoted from Isaiah because they couldn't bold things and underline them and, and, and put arrows and stickers there. And so they put this long passage from Isaiah 42 because they want us to know this is there for a reason. This is there for purpose. And this is another one of the road signs that we're gonna see all throughout scripture of what Jesus is up to and the fact that God sent him. In fact, Matthew's decision to put this prophecy was intentional for the readers because for the readers of that time, they were, it, was, it was Jewish readers. That's who he was writing to. Is that Matthew was specifically writing to people of Jewish heritage. So then they're going to understand things at a level that actually you and I don't. That we just don't get things in the same way. We don't understand the secondary cultural context of what they do. In fact, it's one of the reasons why I have a job up here on a Sunday is that I get a chance to study scripture and go, you know, there's a little bit more to this. Because for that, it was to them, but it's also for us. There's something that we can receive the death and the resurrection of Jesus gives us a better clarity of the, the actual life that he lived. It's 
like any of those movies you watch, like the Christopher Nolan movies or the M. Night Shyamalan movies, where it's like you're watching this thing and you don't understand and you don't understand, and then you get to the end of it and you're like, oh. Jesus' life becomes vividly clear when you look at his life through his death and resurrection. That's when we begin to understand. And that's a benefit that we have that they didn't. In fact, John 20, 29 talks about us in that way. Because Jesus says, he's talking to Thomas. He says, then Jesus told him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. There's nothing wrong with that. We all need places where we are able to anchor our faith. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have understood. Of course, for these religious leaders, of course, for these Jews, they would sit here and look at this and it wouldn't make any sense. Jesus was living a life that was supposed to be one of humble servitude. And so for everybody else, they had different expectations of who Jesus was going to be. So they look at him and it doesn't make any sense. Jesus lived out humility. Jesus lived out that he was pouring himself out as an offering to other people, making sure that others were served, others were glorified. His entire life was meant for that purpose. So of course they didn't understand that. In fact, some scholars go as far as to believe that in Isaiah 42, 1 through 14, that for the rest of the passage that we're going to read, you're going to see the similarities there. But where it's referenced, they're also speaking of the nation of Israel. So it's not just that he was sending Jesus, which he was, but he was also calling his loved ones, the nation of Israel, out to something higher. Let me read it for you, and you'll hear the similarities. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, says it like this. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. So then based on what we know, we can read that and go, oh, again, through the cross, we look at that and we say, of course, that's Jesus. Of course, I can see that. It's written about Jesus, but it was also written for the, the nation of Israel at the time because God chose them and he loved them. And he said, I, I've chosen you and you're mine. I will protect you. I will provide for you. I will be faithful to you. But now that I have given of what I have given, I expect more. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says that for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. But they didn't do it. They didn't obey and they didn't live up to what God had called them to. Now, frankly, let's be honest, who could? Because we spend our life also falling short of what God has called us to live out. But God was in, it said, this is my nation and I've chosen you. And so then Jesus came and he did what they and we couldn't do. So then the author, the inspired author, Matthew, goes on to choose these sort of words. So he's using the Old Testament, but he doesn't, he's so smart. He doesn't stay there. He takes the Old Testament and then he anchors it to something, to the life of Jesus. And, the, and then the words pushing them forward. See it like this. So you're going to read here in a second in, in verse 18 that we've already read once. But the same words that we read in, in Matthew 12, 18 were also used earlier in Matthew 3, 17, which if you've been here since what? We started preaching Matthew in what, 2004, 1996? When did we, I don't know. I don't know. Whenever that was. But uh, we taught Matthew 3, 17. You'll, you'll hear these words. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love 
With him, I am well pleased. Sounds familiar? And then in 12, 18, the same thing comes. And then you move forward into the transfiguration in, in Matthew 17, same thing. This is my son whom I love. These are the words of God. With him, I am well pleased. And then one more thing, and listen to him. And listen to him. It anchors this book. It anchors the authorship. It anchors the authority of who Jesus is. Because it says Jesus came and fulfilled all that was. Jesus is doing it now and he is living for those. This is a message he came to proclaim and so you must listen to him. The authority of Jesus then, and all, all that we see throughout scripture then becomes this recipe for what it is that Jesus is doing. Let's say this. Let's say that um, you go home to your football game on time, of course, and, uh, and I said uh, on the way out, hey, by the way, I'm gonna bring you uh, warm chocolate chip cookies. I'm gonna bring those over. Sound good? Sound good? Amen. I'm not. So I'm, I'm so sorry, but I'm not. But I'm going to bring you over warm, warm chocolate chip cookies, and that is what you are expecting. And I walk over with a bag of flour, and I say, enjoy your cookies. Now, what's wrong? That's part of the cookie, right? That is part of it, and yet it's not all of it. And so if you stop short on that, then you miss the fact that for Jesus and his life, it's the same thing. The Old Testament shows that God's intent for the nation of Israel Jesus is in the fulfillment of that prophecy as he comes on the scene and lives the life that you and I couldn't. Jesus' words then proclaim the heart, character, and the intent of God, and all of that adds up to God coming in human form, dwelling among us in flesh, living the life that you and I couldn't, and dying the death that we deserve. That's what Jesus is. That's who he is, and that's what he did. And there are so many churches around that'll sit here and take one part of it that is true of Jesus and say that. The Bible says to do this and that and that, and that's what I'm gonna do because I'm going to obey the Bible and yet they are missing out. By living in that such a black and white world, they're missing out on the love and the grace that Jesus offers. Yet I've also seen other churches who live in the grace that Jesus offers and realizing that we are called to live as holy people and understanding that though we can't do it, God calls us as it says in Romans, if we sin, may grace increase, may it never be. And so we are called to live in a, in a way that aspires our lives towards God. It's got to be both. It can't just be one. Verse 18. So then, you'll, it sounds familiar. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one that I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit in him, and he will, will proclaim justice to the nations. Jesus is God's servant, chosen, loved. God delights in him. It's, it's like a glowing reference. I, I was in youth ministry for a majority of my professional ministry career, and I love youth ministry, still do. In fact, our middle schoolers are on a bus driving home. So be praying for them. They had a fantastic weekend. Pray for Matt, our junior high director. He is phenomenal, and he, the whole group. Anyways, so they're awesome. Our high schoolers are phenomenal. I love youth ministry, usually. There was one season that I would always dread, and it was college application season. And I'll tell you why. Because college application season meant that everyone came out of the woodworks and asked me for a reference, and which was fine. If it was the students that, I had, that had come to my ministry and had been a part of it, it was easy. I could brag about them. I could tell all the great things, how they served, the mission trips they went on, the fun that we had. And so I would be able to, it was, it was an easy thing to do. But every now and again, there'd be this kid who would come to me or their parents, it was usually their parents who would come and that they would ask me, they'd be like, hey, Timmy hasn't been in youth group in about three and a half years. Can you write a reference? 
And I was like, I don't know. Does Timmy have a mustache now? Like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about Timmy. It's going to be hard to speak to him. So I, typically, I would usually be able to sit down and ask about him. But it's just tougher because if you don't know somebody, then it's going to be tough to get a reference. All I'm saying is, parents, depending on how well um, your kid knows uh, Sammy, it depends. It, that then dictates the size of the gift card that you give him to thank him for that. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. But in these references, it's God saying, I can speak on behalf of Jesus. He's good. He's kind. He's loving. He is my servant. I, del I delight in him. And so as he brings my message of hope, you should listen to him because it's not only a reference, but it's also my spirit that dwells on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. One more reminder that this is a message that is no longer just to the Jews, but to all that all of us can, can run and receive the hope which Jesus proclaims. That is, it is a message from the creator of the universe that has an impact on us today. Right now, it was true then, and it's true now. And then verse 19, he says, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. 20 goes on to say, it's not up here, but it says, he will not break a bruised reed and he won't snuff out a smoldering wick. Do you ever sit and consider the gentleness of Jesus? I'm not much of a, of, a, of a sit and contemplator. I think I'm trying to later on in my life do that. Have you ever sat and just considered the gentleness of Jesus? Because it's so different than anything that we know to be true. There's a book called Gentle and Lowly. It's by an author named Dane Ortland. I would highly recommend it. They, out of there, it comes this quote. It says, lowly gentleness is not one way Jesus occasionally acts towards others. Gentleness is who he is. It is his heart. He's not being gentle. He is gentle. And he invites you in to experience that. And if you're going to try and understand that through logic and reason only, you're going to be there for a while. Because the nature and the actions of Jesus and his gentleness is inhuman and it's unearthly, and it's beautiful, and it's compelling, and it draws people in. Because let's be honest, there's no other relationship in life that, ha that, that doesn't have limits. Even the people that love us most, even the people that we love most, there are limits. There is a limit as to how much I will love you. There's a limit as to how much you will love me. And there's a limit as to how much you will put up with me. So then, of course, we're going to spend, we're going to put all that same stuff on Jesus, we're, of course, we're going to sit here and, and expect that he's going to find a limit to us and our, our, our isms and our things, right? That at some point, Jesus is going to figure out who we are and he's going to leave. And yet, my friends, Jesus is gentle and he's loving and he pursues. So let's not put those same expectations on him. Because while on earth, Jesus ruled with love and with peace. In fact, in fact, there were many, even his closest friends were the ones who tried to change him and do something else. Look at, look at Luke 9. Luke 9, 53 through 56 says it this way. But the people there did not welcome him, this is the town of Samaria, because he was headed to Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. I mean, picture that. Even the ones that are closest are like, yeah, you, you're making fun of Jesus. You won't let us through fire. All you, rain it down, Jesus, bring it down. And they're probably standing behind him. They're like, you're in such big trouble. Jesus is like, that's not who I am. 
That's not, that's not the, the nature and the character that we're asking you to trust in. Verse 20, at the end, it says, till he has brought justice through victory. There will come a day that Jesus will make all that is wrong right. And in fact, that's what the Jews of those time were waiting for. I mean, do you know how bad it was for the nation of Israel? Like slavery, empire after empire went and took everything from them, stripped them clean of their history and their culture and their stuff and their their family. They took their kids and their spouses. They took their crops and their land, everything. The Jews were in exile. They were wandering from generation to generation. And if you spend any time reading through Judges and Kings, you see that all they were doing is crying out and saying, we want to look like that nation over there. And God would say, you don't need to look like that nation. You look like me. I've made you your mind. Remember Deuteronomy 7. He says, you're mine. You don't need that. And they said, no, we want something different. And so he says, fine, here's the king. The king would come. He would oppress. They'd be miserable. And then they're like, we're kidding. We just want you, God. And then it was the cycle. And it would just go around and around. And so this is what the Pharisees wanted and frankly, what they expected because they had lived a generational life of suffering and misery. So then when they read something like Zechariah 1, 16 to 17, they begin to have these expectations and even a confirmation bias. They hear what they want to hear. Zechariah 1, 16 and 17 says, therefore, this is what the Lord has said. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy and there my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched over, out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and shrews Jerusalem. See, what they wanted was 17. What they didn't hear was 16. And I think that we oftentimes do that in our own life too. We want the abundance. We want the overflowing. We want God to restore that which we have lost. But we don't necessarily trust in, which, in the way in which he's going to get there. What they got was Isaiah 42. What they got was Matthew 12, and they didn't know what to do with it. So I think for us, there's a few good questions that we can ask out of this passage today as well. I think the first one is this. Is it what, try, what kind of a Jesus are you trying to create? Be honest. What kind of a Jesus are you trying to create? Because I believe that Jesus will not always give us what we want, but what we need, which will oftentimes lead to disappointment because we, when we put those expectations on what, I mean, again, I'd like to think that I'm way different than the, than the Pharisees. And yet there isn't a day goes by that I am not trying to make Jesus do something in my life that he never intended on doing and never promised to do. And so then it's easy to sit here and, and, and see how the Pharisees missed it because they were trying to create Jesus to be something that he never was. So for that, I, I want to tell you, based on what I see of the nature and the character of the entirety of who Jesus is, hold on a little longer. Because though it's not mentioned, I, I actually like how Matthew paraphrases the Isaiah passage. Let me read the, the end of the Isaiah passage to you one more time. Isaiah 42, 4 says this, he will not grow faint. He will not grow weary. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands. Wait for the law. Just wait. He's not tired. You may be tired. I may be faint and weary. He's not tired and he knows what he's doing. 
when I was a little kid, um, I, I, like I said, I grew up in Ohio. And at this, in this, these years, and at that time, I was probably six, maybe seven years old. And what you did is when you got home from school, you opened the door and you just went out and played. That's what you did. I don't know if it was safe at that time. It sure felt safe, but you just went out when the streetlights went on. When dad got home, that's when you came home. And so me and my younger sister were going out and we were going out to play, which by the way, the end of the, the theology at the end of this thing is, is horrible. So I, I, I full well acknowledge that, but, but it's, it's worth hearing. My sister and I went out and played and some friends or some neighborhood kids from down the street um, invited us to come play in their backyard, which by the way, neighborhood kids, you might want to run a reference on neighborhood kids sometimes too, just in general. So they said, come over and play in our backyard. So we go over to their backyard. This is me and my younger sister. So I'm seven, she's five. They go and they slam the gate. We look and we're like, what's going on? They go, we have you trapped back here. We're like, okay. And they say, see those shovels over there? We go, yeah. They go, you have to dig a hole all the way to hell to release all the vampires. I was like, what? I don't want to do that at all. They go, well, if you don't dig a hole to hell to release all the vampires, we're going to beat you up and throw throw you in the hole. And I was like, in my head, even at seven, I was like, well, if I don't dig the hole, you can't throw me. Anyways, never mind, never mind. So we sat there and we dug the hole. Now, I will tell you, even at seven years old, even as I was doing this, what I knew, dig the hole slowly, okay? You dig the hole slowly for a couple of reasons. One, if they're right, I don't want to get to hell. Like, I do not want to get there and I for sure do not want to release the vampires, okay? Like, nobody wants to do that. But more than anything is that I'm sitting there and I'm digging and you know what I kept thinking in my head the entire time as I was digging? I said, I knew it was about 4, 4.30. My dad was going to be home at about five o'clock. And I just sat there and in my head, all I remember is going, you just wait until my dad gets home. You're in the biggest trouble. He's going to take the shovel. You want, I'm going to go in the ditch. You're going to go in the ditch. That's what's going to happen. You just, you wait until my dad gets home. Your current circumstances may not feel like God's got it under control. And yet what I see from Isaiah 42, 4, he will not grow faint. Or be discouraged. He, my friends, Jesus is not weary. You may be, but he is not. And I love that Matthew then goes and changes it. He goes and he changes it. And his last verse says, in his name, the nations will put their, does it say law like it did before? No, it says hope. He changes it to hope. He doesn't have to say the law. Law is here. Jesus is here. The law is here. Jesus has come to live out in the fulfillment of the law of all that was promised. So we don't have to wait for the law anymore. We put our hope in Jesus. Hold on a little longer, my friends. You just wait until dad comes home. Because it may not feel like it, but God has got this. And again, I kind of say this, whatever the, he's, he's got this. And it doesn't feel like it always. But what I, what I know from my own life and from scripture, God does not waste a single tear. And it may not feel like it as you try and raise your family and navigate through what tomorrow will bring, but he sees it. Because we are, not, we are a part of a much bigger plan that starts at Genesis 1 and goes all the way to Revelation 22. We're in here. We're in here. And in fact, I was reading this. It's not on the, it's not on the screen, but this was a quote that I found actually last night from one of my favorite authors. And he says, he says Genesis 1 like this. It says, I love how the Bible begins, in the beginning, God, those four words. You could argue that these, these are the four most important words in Scripture. Everything else that follows from Genesis to Revelation requires our attention, awe, and obedience. He goes, well, in a word, God. 
in the beginning God. And from Genesis 1 to Genesis 3, we get this account of how God created us with purpose and with form that he knitted us, to, that he formed us with his hands. He took out of dust and he inserted his breath into us so that you and I are breath carriers as we walk around this earth. We are a reflection of God. That's not trees, that's not animals, that's not this table. We are image bearers of God. And so we look like him. We have characteristics of him. We strive to be more like him. And in Genesis 3, we said no to God. For the first time, we said no, creating separation between a holy God and a broken human race. And so every person that came after his creation that said no, then inherits that same sin. It's called the Adamic sin. We also all sit in that separation between us and God. And so then from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22, God is redeeming and restoring his world, his creation, that which he loves. And he invites you into that story, but not without hope. Because he invites you in and he says that I've got a plan and I want to restore. And it starts with Jesus. Look at, look at John 3.16, but keep going. So John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's good, it gets better. John 3.17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. My friends, he did not leave us empty. He did not leave us alone. He sent us Jesus, the full entirety of Jesus. Because when we said no to God, it started, it was, it was the no that rang around the world. That as we, as we put separation between us and God, it then created not only a, 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 a chasm between us and God, but also a as, as unholy beings, we can't coexist with a holy entity. Romans 3.23 says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's you, that's me for sure, that's us. And then it gets worse because Romans 6.23 says that for the wages of sin is death. So then with every no that we say to God, we are earning death. And yet, in God's mercy, he sent his son. He sent his son to live the life that you and I couldn't, die the death that we deserved to die, defeat death, ascend and sit at the right hand of the Father. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of, of all of who we are because Jesus did that for us. And then the best news is where we see in Romans 8, 8.1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. So that very thing that we said, if, if you don't put your faith in Jesus, there's condemnation, guess what? None. We're not condemned. No condemnation. Because of what we did? Absolutely not. Because of the, the full and entire message of who Jesus is. The gentle and lowly, the truth-filled, the grace-filled, the loving. It's Jesus. And so may we, may we trust in him. May we worship in that Jesus today. And so Father, first we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is worthy of our worship. 
worthy of our heart, worthy to put our faith into. So God, may we now, even with every word that we sing and declare and proclaim, may we be a people that align our head and our heart with you. Honoring you, giving you glory and worship for the son that you sent. And that our life has a second chance because of him. May we live in that truth today. In your name we pray. Amen. And this concludes this week's podcast. We hope you've enjoyed spending some time with us. And if you haven't already, like and subscribe to our YouTube and find us on Instagram at NGATECF. See you next week.